This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. October is LGBT History Month, and in Illinois, there are a number of landmark moments to reflect on that go back further than you might think. In 1970, Chicago held the first Pride Parade, beating out other cities by a couple of hours. In 1961, Illinois became the first state to repeal sodomy laws. And nearly a century ago in 1924, a man by the name of Henry Gerber founded the first official gay rights organization in the country. We might not know all this history if not for local LGBTQ plus communities archiving their own stories. So joining us now is James Conley, board co-chair of Gerber Hart Library and Archives, the largest circulating LGBTQ library in the Midwest. Welcome back, James. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here, Sasha. Good to see you. So I just named a few pretty major milestones there, but uh, we have this really rich local past here in Chicago. So let me ask you first, what is your favorite personal moment in LGBTQ plus history? Oh, you know, that's a tough one. Um, I was thinking about this earlier and I don't necessarily think this is maybe the most important in terms of sort of our rights as citizens, as as free people in this country. But it is a moment that personally for me struck uh, a chord and, and I'll never forget being there. Um, and that's, you know, being in the UIC forum, watching the governor sign uh, into law uh, our, our freedom to marry act, yeah. um, mostly because, you know, growing up in the early 80s, all that messaging, right, about, about our community and, and realizing that I was uh, gay or queer as, you know, uh, an older child, early adolescent, um, I never believed that I would ever have the right to marry. Like, it, it didn't even occur to me. It was just, no, this is never going to happen. Don't plan on it. Don't plan your wedding. Don't ever think you'll find somebody that you can marry. Um, just put it out of your mind. And so being there as an adult, seeing this happen, and even more more than just for myself, being there with friends and seeing folks in the community who'd had these partnerships for decades and decades mm -hmm. recognized in this way, just sobbing and holding each other and having this moment of community in this huge space with so many people, I will never forget that. I mean, moment. you had already blocked it out of your mind that that would ever be a possibility. Yeah. So I wonder if you thought this moment was a dream. It was. I mean, it really, <laughs> it really felt like that. And I'm sure to so many of the folks in that audience that day, they never, they never had that spark of a dream. And then here it was all of a sudden. And you felt like, hey, maybe we're going to make it. <laughs> Not that marriage is the end all be all, but you know. <laughs> it's a big moment. It's a huge sure. moment, yeah. So today is the last day of LGBT History Month. But people can, of course, continue to get involved in, in preserving this legacy. So what's the significance of remembering and archiving the history so, year round? Yeah. So uh, I think that's a wonderful question. Um, I think a lot of people have this idea of archives and libraries as these sort of like dusty caverns of information, unless they're librarians and nerds like myself, you know, <laughs> Um but I think what's really important to remember here, right, is there's that old sort of saying that the the victors tell the story, right? Um, and not that we're necessarily in a war exactly, um, although we have been at, at times in our lives and sometimes it feels like we are today. Keeping that history alive means that we will be represented. We have a place in the history books. So much of our history is lost because it wasn't safe 
to have it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So that's actually why we have it, right, is because folks kept that hidden in their basements, in their attics, places where they thought no one's ever going to find this. I know it's my secret hiding place. Mm-hmm. And now that it's safer, they've been able to donate that that to us. And so we're able to put together this rich tapestry of our history with all these different threads, these different puzzle pieces to sort of <laughs> mix my metaphors a little bit. Um and that is power. Yeah. That is representation through history. Now, does that mean that we've done it perfectly? Of course not. Because there are gaps <laughs> that exist in, in, in the archive. Yes, right? absolutely. Uh, you know, this probably is no surprise to anyone. <laughs> um, but the folks who've had probably the ability to keep a lot of this, um, you know, whether that's in terms of like security of, of like financial security or safety or whatever throughout history tend to be cisgendered white men, right? So the thing we have the most of is gay white male history. Um, it's not to say that we don't have a rich collection at the Gerber Heart. We do. We have, you know, John Jack Black's papers. We've got uh, Amigas Latinas, which, you know, you'll be speaking with folks later on about that. Um, we have transgenesis, uh, you know, information. Mm-hmm. Um but the majority of the stuff is sort of in that one space. Yeah, so we, the, so those folks you just listed, they're not as representative, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. There, and we, you know, the 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 responsibility on the other side of the power of an archive is not just that we can tell a story; it's that we have a responsibility to tell the whole story. Got to be inclusive. Yes, we need to be inclusive because that's the truth. Um, you know, especially in Chicago, so much was happening on the South Side in the black communities, especially in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. So much that thankfully, um, you know, because we have like the Chicago Defender and things like that, we have a record of that there. And we know that there are folks that are holding on to those histories in that community. We don't have those um, as a small nonprofit, not affiliated with the university or another sort of financial benefactor. Um we have relied on the kindness of strangers really uh, donating their materials to us because we haven't been able to afford to purchase them. Yeah. Um, and so now we realize, you know, one of the things our board's very active on is we need to make that effort to go out into the community to prove ourselves to folks that we're not just there to steal somebody's history. We're there to contribute to it, to build a richer picture and to share it with everyone. While you're spending all that time archiving history at Gerber Hart. You've also talked about the fact that this is very personal, right? You're able to touch some of these artifacts and papers and photos. Tell us more about that feeling and and what these keepsakes have taught you about James and James's identity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I was a volunteer for about eight years before I joined the board. Um, and you have this incredible privilege of being able to go through the personal papers of individual folks. And that doesn't just mean like, you know, meeting minutes, right. From uh, an activist organization, although that can be really exciting too, depending on what happened. Um, But sometimes it's these albums of photos of private moments between close friends, family, found family in their homes, just enjoying a cocktail and being able to see queer love represented, um, in a way that like we did not ever see publicly because it wasn't safe at that time. And so for myself, I was going through, I remember boxes of uh, papers from Queer Nation and these activist organizations. And growing up, I always heard the word queer as a slur, right? And so it would sort of like give me this physical response to hear somebody call me that. 
Um, but I never really felt fully included uh, being a gay man. Um, I felt like there was something a little off about that. And then going through these papers and realizing that there was this incredible reclamation of the word queer in the 90s that really started in 1990 that was all about celebrating the otherness of that terminology and saying that queer, sort of with a capital Q, right, um, was a way to identify yourself and to be proud of the fact that you're fluid in many different ways and that not everyone, everyone, you know, everyone who identifies as queer is allowed to identify that way in their own beautiful sort of variety of traits. But right? did you jump on board immediately in no. the 90s? <laughs> no, it no. Sounds no. like it took some time. Yeah, it wasn't. It really wasn't until I was going through these papers and learning about this that I realized there's a place for me here. And for anyone who's discovered that about themselves, there is maybe no more powerful feeling in the world, finding your identity and feeling an affinity with that and a truth in that and feeling the incredible freedom of just being able to say, like, I know where I fit in the tapestry of history and within myself. Mm. And I feel comfortable and loved and held and warm and powerful, really, um, in that way. And I I, I dearly wish anyone um, could have that opportunity because it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful moment. This year, James, we have seen this increase of homophobic and transphobic violence legislation, too. Yeah. Uh, for instance, there's been over 500 anti-LGBTQ bills that were introduced in the 2023 session. This is according to a tracker from the uh, American Civil Liberties Union. Talk briefly about the role of collecting LGBTQ history in the face of all of that. Well, I think it's more important than ever, right? You know, I think... The thing that these bills really hope to do is to erase us from history, erase us from the fabric of society. And we know, regardless of, you know, we, we, we look at some governments around the world that, that claim that they have no gay people, right? Um, that's not true. That's never been true. We, we have existed as long as history has existed and before written history. Um, the difference is that it wasn't safe to be found sometimes. Um cultures, ideologies, religions changed, attitudes changed about it. Uh, so it went from being okay to being dangerous and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we find ourselves in that period again and being able to collect this stuff and say, Hey, you may try to legislate everything about our identities and our bodies and our existence, but we still exist and we can prove that we have always existed mm. um, and that we have fought through these things before. It's a good reminder that they have come for us before, they will come for us again, and we will fight and we will win because, you know, we, you're on the right side of history, right? Yeah. <laughs> so much of this history to, to that end is heavy. Yes. But this archive is making space for queer joy, yes. too. Tell us about that. Well, I, I just I wanted to sort of highlight one of my favorite pieces from the collection. Uh, I mentioned Joan Jet Black earlier. If you don't know Joan Jet Black, Look her up. She is amazing. Um, she ran in the 90s under the Queer Nation sort of party uh, for president of the United States. And she's a powerful black drag queen. There, We have photographs of her riding on floats, walking in the parades in this American flag outfit, carrying flags, the crowd losing their mind for her, and just the most radiant expression of joy 
amongst her and everyone that was in her group. And it's a reminder that even coming off the AIDS epidemic, even coming after all of the struggle, there was joy to be found and to be shared in community with one another and to be shared with the world. You know, like when you bring that joy to a space that radiates and it changes people. Um, and it's, it's so inspiring to look through these photos and see that. And it, you feel it. You yeah. just feel that warmth. So what can the past, you think, teach us about the present? As I think, I think what it can teach us about the present is to remind ourselves that this has happened before. So when we start panicking, it's, you know, it's a good reminder that we've been here before. We may be here again, hopefully not too many more times. <laughs> I'm getting kind of tired of it. I know we all are. Um, but we have succeeded because we have not faltered. We have not stopped fighting. And we have not lost our joy in the process. We have kept that pride in community and in loving one another. Yeah. And really, I mean, it sounds cliche, but the power of love is so strong. And when you form those bonds of community, you can you can do so much more than, you know, isolating yourself alone and, and feeling lost. So get out there and find some community and, and bond and, you know, build build your strength. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned earlier, LGBTQ history, it doesn't just matter during October. Right. So leave us with this. What resources or advice do you want to give folks listening who might want to get involved, whether at Gerber Hart or elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, my my advice, I think this is something that was really powerful for me, and it's maybe most applicable to younger folks. You know, we lost a lot of generation of our elders who could have taught us how to live, how to survive, how to be. Um, get out there and make intergenerational friendships. If you're older, make friends with younger people. If you're younger, make make an effort to get out there, whether it's the Gerber Heart or, uh, you know, a poetry reading or any of the millions of amazing events that happen across Chicago and uh, the United States. Make some intergenerational friends. Learn from each other. Build that community there. We don't get to do that very much in the bars. Um, it's hard to do that. Um, but it will teach you so much about yourself, about the legacy that we all carry as LGBTQ folks. Mm -hmm. And it may even give you a window into your own identity that you didn't know existed. So it can be very powerful in many ways. We learn so much from our elders. We do. Don't we? we do. We'll leave it there. That's James Conley, board co-chair of Gerber Hart Library and Archives, talking about how knowing our local LGBTQ plus history can help us in our present and future. Thank you so much, James. Thank you so much for having me. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. In the Gerber Hart archives in Rogers Park, boxes of flyers and photos tell the history of Amigas Latinas, a support network for Latina lesbians in Chicago that began in 1995. Though the group disbanded in 2015, its impact lives on. Now that's the message behind a new exhibit that's now featured at Gerber Hart, which pulls the past into the present and takes inspiration from the archive to create art pieces at projects called Amigas Latinas Forever. The artists behind the exhibit join us now here in studio is Amanda Cervantes. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you for having me. And on the phone with us is Jose Luis Benavides. Welcome to Reset, Luis. And I'll start with you, Amanda. Uh, so, uh, you know, many of the members of Amigas Latinas, they're still around, right? Mm -hmm. So there's uh, fortunately, there's this living, breathing history. So talk to us more about them and then what it was like working with them as well as Luis on this project. So it was really amazing to kind of uh, be able to connect with the 
former founders, um, the members of Amigas Latinas. Mm -hmm. And as a part of our project, um, we reached out to them directly um, with the help of Gerber Hart to, as a way to talk to them and to get to hear firsthand um, from them about what it was like to um, run this organization and some of the um, memories and experiences that they had um, during the time of Amigas Latinas. And uh, you've also said that uh, Amigas Latinas is an organization that you wish that you would have known of when you were growing up as a kid in the Chicago suburbs. What kind of feelings came up for you as you were looking through this archive? Yeah, so um, I was, so I grew up in Downers Grove um, and something that I wish I knew of as I was, you know, understanding my own identity, I wanted, um, I kind of yearned for that queer kinship. Um, something that I found looking through the archives was that they had uh, groups for um, young people called Amiguitas. And when I was a high schooler in the early 2010s, um, they were also doing like queer prom events. And to me, I felt like ships passing in the night. Um, I was so happy that they, um, that these queer teenagers, um, these uh, young Latinas in Chicago had these, um, this place for them mm-hmm. to um, come together and to meet and to celebrate themselves. Um, and it's something that I wish that I was able to uh, have, but I was so happy to see that they had this. But then you were able to learn from this history and build from it. Yes. Yeah. I think that was um, the biggest thing that I've been able to, that I've been so excited to work with with this archive was that I was able to learn about how incredible that the advocacy that all this work that um, all the members put in and the events that they had for outreach, their um, their activist work, and also their joy, their parties, their um, poetry readings, all that things. Yeah. Luis, you discovered the Amigas Latinas archive as you volunteered at the Gerber Hart Archives. So tell us, what compelled you to start this project with Amanda? Uh, Well, first, thanks for having me on. Um, How did I get involved with Gerber Hart? Um, I was already in the uh, 2016-17 working on a project about my mom's history, and she was institutionalized in Chicago in the 1970s at Chicago Mental Chicago Reed Mental Health Center. Um, she came out to her family as a teenager after they'd recently immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico, um, and they didn't really know what to do with her mental health sort of crisis and, and issues at the time. Mm-hmm. So that sent me to Gerber Hart in, in search of any materials that I could use of from the 70s regarding Latina lesbian women um they didn't really have anything in this in that at that at that time or in about the 70s um and so then i went back during the middle of the pandemic when i found out that uh river Hart had acquired the amigas latinas collection and um, it was now public uh, so I, w- I went in to kind of learn about Gerber, work with Gerber, get closer so that i could have access to the to the archive i see and and you sort of uh, imagine the two together right that the history of your mom lulu in conversation with the history of Amigas Latinas. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It felt like there was already so many parallels and then I eventually 
or Amanda and I eventually just found all those threads and all those exact parallels of the kinds of events that they were hosting that overlap exactly with the needs of the community that my mom is a part of as well. Um, they, my mother was never a part of Amigas Latinas. I think that's important to say. But um, in regards to the kinds of services and the the community that they were forming, it's, it's all the same, right? Chicago in the, in the 90s and the 80s, uh, that my mom was literally at the same types of clubs that they were. You know, it would be very hard to imagine that they wouldn't have not been at the same dance nights like salsa nights or yeah. you know, house music nights in Chicago. So. That's so interesting. And looking at these photos, Luis, I hear that you've said that there were times that you imagined yourself in them as if you were seeing a scene from your own life. Yeah, it's very nostalgic and weird or like a faux nostalgia for something that I didn't actually experience, like a picnic or a barbecue or bowling event. But literally, it's the same places that I was going to as a child in Logan Square, uh, you know, diversity bowl, where my cousins would have bowling parties for their birthday. That's yeah. where that's where Amiga Latinas was having their bowling parties, too. So you're like, I get him in there. Exactly. <laughs> any, other, I, any other personal connections that, that came up as you investigated this archive, Amanda? Um, yeah, so I think that there was these connections that I had with looking at, um, for example, they had a lot of events and um, in their later years at the National Museum of Mexican Art. And that's in Pilsen, like where I live currently. Mm -hmm. So I kind of think of these like, oh, wow, like, at this time, they had um, a dike march, for example, in Pilsen, like 2009. I live in Pilsen They were walking now. these very streets. Exactly. There's yeah. like the, um, there's so much history in Pilsen and so much history that connects to Amigas Latinas in Pilsen. And as somebody who lives in Pilsen now, that was really um, amazing to see and something that makes me feel like I'm walking this queer history in my neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, sticking with you for a moment, Amanda, I hear you really fixated on the flyers that uh, the members of Amigas Latinas made and mailed out. Why did you feel so drawn to essentially papers? <laughs> yeah, so um, I felt that the flyers um, represented something that I have been calling a physical social network. Um, these were flyers that were um, made and mailed every week to members, and they were not like publicly posted anywhere um, and that was also to maintain member safety and privacy and um, I was fixated on them because in times before social media and this was how um, in some ways for people to be reached was through the mail so there were um, and I was interested in because of the colors they had like clip art and there was binders full of them so something that we took away from that we wanted to represent in the exhibition was we wanted to um, kind of showcase these. We wanted these flyers to kind of have their moment, even though there's something so little as, yes, a piece of paper. Um, we wanted, we used that and we kind of magnified it. We covered a whole wall. A wall of flyers. Yes. Yeah. What is that? So if I haven't been there before, describe that. What does it look like? So it's... Um, basically multicolored copy paper. It's in this bright neon colors. And we used um, a Rezo machine, like the, it's a screen printing tool. Um, we remade them and using different flyers across their history. Um, we took out their um, addresses and phone numbers to still maintain that privacy. But we covered a whole wall in this big, colorful, um, like flyer wall, basically, of 
past events they made. So now we're able to, people are able to kind of look and see like all kinds of events that they did, like book talks, um, the bowling night, um, talks about like how to come out to your kids, like all kinds of events um, across their history that now people can come up to and read what um, exactly what they were doing. And then we were able to kind of that. share it. And Luis, you, you made a video stitching archival material together. You, you finished the video though with, with clips of women dancing to this bouncy beat. Yeah. Sounds a little um, something like this. <laughs> and you, um, on the top, you overlaid flyers and parade photos. And uh, there's an image of a cake saying, Happy Amigas Latinas. So tell me about some of that archival footage and, and why you chose to end there. Um, the video is, is in in progress still, so it's not really an ending in that regard. It's just what could fit into what I could make in time while we were installing a massive show at Chicago Art Department and then again at Gerber Art. But um, the choice of the sort of found footage that I'm using and the photographs from the actual Amigos Latinas archive um, and other things that I've collected over years uh, comes from just trying to, again, like Amanda said, celebrate the organization or, or highlight their joy. Um, there's images of them at their barbecues and picnics. There's images of what I tried to highlight from found footage that I even got from YouTube is just Latina women in the 80s and 90s dancing mm -hmm. um, and dancing with each other and kind of in some ways something that I did in my first film about my mom would be to excise the men from the scenes of uh, what was then like uh, you know soul train footage that I was using in the 70s and yeah. now these recordings of like house parties and dance music and house music events um, in Chicago or wherever they I might find the footage from. Um, yeah, yeah, so try to keep it fun in that regard. That's awesome. Well, before I let you both go, I got to ask you about the name, Luis, right? The, the name now, Amigas Latinas Forever, because that gives a, a sense of longevity and it reminds us of the future, not just the past. So was that your intention? Absolutely. Amanda and I have been writing academically and um, thinking about queer time for a long time, and that's like an academic sort of framework or or theory about the way that queer people um, kind of operate in a different temporality where we might be coming out forever for the rest of our life. We might never come out. I mean, people are coming out and going back in the closet all the time for safety reasons. And mm -hmm. so the idea of the forever aspect of Amigas Latinas is to say, hey, um, you know, organizations like our collaborators, Mari Macha Monarca Press, for the CAD show, had never really known about Amigas Latinas, and, and lots of new people are learning about Amigas Latinas now as we continue forward. So yeah. we sort of see ourselves as part of a legacy of the organization, trying to promote it and keep it alive awesome. forever. Amigas Latinas forever. We'll leave it there. That's Jose Luis Benavides and Amanda Cervantes talking about Amigas Latinas forever, which is an exhibit responding to and highlighting the history of a Chicago discussion group for LGBTQ plus Latinas. Thank you both.